I would love to tell you about a passage in the Bible that is one of the most controversial passage in the Bible passages in the Bible that almost no one knows about. Ooh. Ooh. Now, I'm very curious about this because, oh, listeners, I am not a Bible scholar at all. But as a child, I read the Old Testament voraciously. Mm. And so if I don't know this story, can you give me a hint and see if I know it? Because I'll be impressed with myself if I know it. If I don't, then it's in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 32. Which is well, I don't have it memorized. I'm a charismatic, not. What does Moses do before he dies? Who's Moses? Who is Moses? Moses. Okay, what does he do before he dies? Oh, okay, I don't know. I give okay. up. Moses give is up. clearly the, Moses is the guy who leads Israel out of the out of Egypt mm-hmm. and into mm-hmm. the wilderness, mm-hmm. where Israel is tested by God in numerous and manifold ways, and in which an entire generation dies in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. For their complaining and their disobedience. Before he dies, and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses sings a song. <laughs> Which is a little bit cheesy to think of him like standing up and singing a song. Uh, no, I love it because I love musical theater and it reminds me of In Les Mis. Mm-hmm. When Jean Valjean like sings and then basically dies. So I'm picturing that right now. Whenever there are these moments, like I think of we we watch every every holiday, every Christmas, we watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. With oh, yes. Lots of songs in Lord of the Rings. Just someone will break into a song, like mm-hmm. when they crown Aragorn King in the third one, and he's like, oh, and it's like, it's almost like involuntary laughter, or it could be super serious, but you're kind of on the edge a little bit. You know, that's how I, I felt. In defense of Peter Jackson, as you know, I'm sure, because you've read the books, right? I have. Okay, yeah, there's tons of songs that tons. don't actually oh, make it. Oh, the whole thing is <laughs> it's like, like little, lots of songs. It's also kind of cringy there too, but again, yes. it depends on one's sensibility. Leah's saying, I like it. It's yeah. Like a musical. Okay, Deuteronomy. I like tur- musicals. Deuteronomy so. turns into a musical okay. in chapter 32. Here for it. Look at Genesis. God creates the world. Exodus is the story of the Exodus from Egypt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Numbers and Leviticus are two stories of laws and rules and wandering around the desert. And then in Deuteronomy, you basically get a recap of the whole story. This is the so-called Torah or the right, Pentateuch, right. the first five books. Love it. And at the very end, Moses sings a song. He's singing all kinds of things. He's, he starts this song in Deuteronomy 32 by saying, listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear you earth, the words of my mouth. I'm sure that's the tune he was using. Yeah, yeah. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew. He's going to proclaim the name of the Lord. He's going to say all kinds of things. He talks about how corrupt Mm. the children of Israel have been. And he Mm -hmm. asks them to remember the days of old, the old timey days, Mm -hmm. how he did this stuff. Now I'm going to start reading at verse seven in the remember and listen to this. And then I'm going to tell you what's controversial. This takes some patience, but I think, friends, we will all get a payoff here. Okay. And we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism here in a Mm. second. This is leading somewhere. Mm -hmm. This is leading somewhere. Deuteronomy 32.7. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Mm -hmm. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind... He set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Mm-hmm. No real big bombshells there, except there is one problem. There is a bombshell. When I read, he set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel, that is actually not the earliest reading in the earliest best manuscripts of the Bible that we have. What? No, what is it? Yes, it says... Uh-oh. Something else. Okay. When the mo- here's what it actually says. When when El Yun, 
most high. This is this is term when El Yun, some deity, fit, you know, this this god translated yes. here most high, El El Yun, gave the nations their inheritance when he divided all the peoples. Um, people. okay. He set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the Bene Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of gods, Ooh. the deities. For Yahweh's portion, the Lord's portion, that's Yahweh's like the kind mm -hmm. of the way people would say the name of God. Pious Jews wouldn't say it. I'm not a pious Jew. I'm saying it. Plenty of pious Jews actually I have heard say it, so it's not a big deal. Yes. I didn't die right there. Just bear with me. <laughs> For Yahweh's portion is his people. So if you read it that way, it could, it could. I'm not saying this is right. I'm not saying this is the he best way. He would never. But you could read it as though it's saying that there's this figure, El Yun, the most high, yes. who's kind of like a high deity. And he's kind of looking. He's like, okay, we've got some nations. We've got some peoples. These peoples, I'm going to set up boundaries for these peoples according to the number of deities that we got, which is a lot. Mm. And I'm going to give each deity its nation. And by the way, for this deity of the Lord, I'm yes. going to give that to Israel, to Jacob. Jacob is the, the name for Israel. Mm. Ah. In other words, it's, 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 basically, it's basically giving you a blatantly polytheistic scene in which you have the basic world theology of the ancient Near East, which is that each nation has a god. Mm -hmm. Israel has its God, but other nations have their gods. And I, if we had time, I could read other passages that tell you that people in this time, in right. these olden days, thought like that. Right. That different nations had different gods. There's a, a part in the, the so-called Jephthah story in the yes. book of Judges, where Jephthah gives a long speech before the horrible moment. Mm -hmm. Look it up. Yes. Where Spoiler. he basically, he alludes to this world theology by saying, hey, Mo, you know, whoever it is, like, hey, Moabites. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Moabites, their God is Chemosh and they have their land. Our God is the Lord. We have our land. And so he assumes that that's true. Notice though, the change in the text. I was reading from the NIV there, which okay. is the kind of like okay. so-called nearly inspired version. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we have a whole episode about that. Okay. But um, basically this, so they have used this less difficult reading, which some mm -hmm. ancient texts have, which apparently changed the phrase, B'nai Elohim to B'nai Yisrael, sons yes. of Israel, because that's a, it doesn't make you deal with the polytheism problem. Ah, fascinating. Okay, I have a reason that I brought this up to you. Okay. Here, here I want to kick this over to you. Okay. I want to discuss a new, new survey. This is, I saw this on NPR, but it's from our friends over at PRRI. Yes. Robbie Jones wrote one of my uh, recommendation letters for my PhD program. That's an amazing claim to fame. Robbie Jones is a big deal. Mm -hmm. He's quoted all mm -hmm. the time now. Mm -hmm. um, Public Re Religion Research Institute and the yes. Brookings Institution. New survey. This new survey says this. I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of the NPR article. Care to comment. Okay. Long seen as a fringe viewpoint, Christian nationalism now has a foothold in American politics, particularly in the Republican Party, according to a new survey from PRI. Researchers found that more than half of Republicans believe the country should be a strictly Christian nation, mm. either, either adhering to the ideals of Christian nationalism, 21%, or sympathizing with those views, 33%. First of yes. all, what is Christian nationalism? This has been one of the biggest terms. We haven't actually talked about it on the pod yet, really directly. Yes, but it's which been is it's probably, been going on. yes. What, what, what do you well, think should be said about this? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, first off, I think I, think I would start by, it, it depends whether or not Christian nationalism has been fringe. I think that is a very highly contested I, Yeah, when I read statement. that, I was like, what? Fringe? <laughs> I would, I'll just say I would never in a million years write that statement. Why do you think they said it was fringe? Why, why would they say that? Uh, well, you know, I don't know um, why this particular reporter um, wrote it that way. 
Um, so I think it, in order to say that it's fringe, I think if, if you say that Christian nationalism is fringe, that I think you're deploying the category of Christian nationalism in a really specific way. So mm. you're saying, oh, I, when I hear people say, it, it, this person saying that, I would, I would hear, oh, the kind of exuberant, charismatic flag wavers that stormed the U.S. Capitol. Mm -hmm. That used to be fringe, but now it's not. And I would see that as a nod to like a certain style of republicanism that has taken over the Republican Party. Uh -huh. And then later on in this article, they talk about some, some pretty, um, I'll just call Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene a, a character, right? Um, sure, sure, sure. So, I, but as I understand, if, if we just want to take the term in a really strict sense, the idea that the United States ought to be a Christian nation. Yeah. That is such a longstanding widespread idea. I would never say that that okay. was fringe. In fact, I would say it was very, very dominant. In fact, I just, I, I don't want to take over your, your thought line of thinking. No, 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 I just this is great. This is great. found out Keep about going. a really good book yep. um, on Princeton university press um, by Lerone Martin called The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism. Oh, wow, we're going to link that. Oh, yeah. This book is... What a title. I know. But if you think about J. Edgar Hoover, we're talking way before the Trump administration. We're talking about the mid-20th century um, and how, um, you know, this book tracks how the FBI mm -hmm. helped to create um, a Christian nationalist ideology and government. So a uh, white Christian nationalist. So I, I, yeah, I think I would take issue with that first sentence. You know, who else, <laughs> you know, who else takes uh, issue um, with it is um, Kristen Kobe, Kristen Kobe do Kristen Kobes Dumay. Kristen Kobes yes. Dumay. Excellent historian. Friend of the show. Just kidding. She's maybe not, but we would like her to be. <laughs> sure. A history professor at Calvin University. She's famous for the book uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Oh, yes. So it's book. important to note that this is not a novel ideology in American families. Yes. Quote, Thank you, Dr. These Dumay. ideas have been widely held throughout American history, and <laughs> yeah. particularly since the 1970s. I mean, I don't even know why, though, she would go particularly since the 1970s or why you didn't bring up. Even the idea that, like, yes, it's true that many of uh, America's founders were, you know, deist, enlightenment types. A few would be recognizably Christian. Some of the more famous ones, like Thomas sure. Jefferson. Or George Washington, whose biography, 814-page bi biography by Ron Chernow, I just finished. Oh, was it good? Not an identifiably Christian figure. I mean, only referred to Jesus one or two times in all of his published letters, which are voluminous. You'd think somebody who was a Christian. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was an, he was, he was an Anglican. Sure. But, you know, maybe that makes sense. Um, anyway, a little Anglican joke there. Okay. Uh. But... Anyway, the point is to say, I mean, you had like Puritans coming over here who were doing some pretty serious church and state stuff. Sure. Like this, sure. Is, this, is a, this is a known thing. Like this isn't even since the 1970s. Like this is a big American theme for a pretty long time at, at, from the colonial period onward, is it not? Well, I mean, I think that's why I, I think if, if I were, I don't want to put words in Dr. Jume's mouth, but. I think when I hear 1970s, I think that is a direct reference to a particular style of white evangelical political action. Yes. And it is the result of Cold War fears about mm -hmm. um, the communist mm -hmm. threat to the United States in the form of the USSR mm -hmm. and China. And this idea that American democracy and Christianity are intertwined, their fates are intertwined. Yes. And it's a special thing. And I think of it as a, 
fairly Baptisty idea of about um, the exceptional status of the United States. So I think if when I hear, you know, especially since the 1970s, I think yeah. it's this organized effort that's a trans-denominational, mostly Protestant, yes. you know, operation. Like, we're yes. going to mobilize in this direction. But like, you know, like, co- yes. like Cotton Mather. But yes, I bet you I mean, could go back to some serious preachers, and it, this is like riddled with this kind of language. Like, well, all over yes, the especially the since- idea that America is like, you know, I'm just pulling on like basic knowledge here, not yours, but like, but like my own, like the idea that America's a city on a hill. Well, and that America has a particular spiritual destiny. I have to make a note here that America is connected to God. Puritans did not have America, right? So they predate no, no, this. No, of course. So of they course, didn't see they didn't see a particular nation. Um, in the same way that we imagine no, it like didn't the exist. United States. It didn't exist. But they did speak about their work as as an example to a watching world, i.e., um, for many of them, it was England, their homeland, that they thought of as their homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this idea that God has ordained a particular land and a particular people right. And that what becomes the United States is that place. It is a promise. There's lots of promised yeah, land yeah, language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to the 19th century, like manifest destiny, this idea that the continent should belong um, to America yeah, or this yeah, yeah. as a kind of mystical ideal. Yes. I mean, yes, that just is just I'm re- I'm throughout. I'm referring to all that. That's <laughs> throughout. My, yes. that's, that's a theme. I wonder if you could counsel me here. Okay. You've counseled me about history just now with the Puritans, which I appreciate. And I'm going to keep taking advantage of this council brother. Okay. Here's, and this is a true contradiction that I, that, that is maybe only in my own heart and mind and nobody else's. This is a very Brian kind of fear and contradiction. Mm. I fear that the things that I, this, this actually is a personal note. This is a bigger kind of problem that I have, which is like, there are things that I don't like or things that I hate, but I have a deep fear that actually those things are inevitable, natural, even for lots of people. Okay. And that, and that even though I think there's like an act of culture or will that we can do against a thing, there's a deeper problem that means the thing is going to persist, which even suggests that, you know, this is very complicated. So here it is in this format. I hate, like personally, not even trying to hide the fact, I hate the idea of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I personally hate it. You don't have to say what you think. Don't say, don't say. Well, you can probably guess, but keep going. Keep but going. I, I hate it. it. It's It looks to me like idolatry. I, you know, mm-hmm. I do, I'm not going to worship our country. I do not want to go into a church and see an American flag in front of the church. Which I, is often. I do there. not like that sort of thing. It, it is grotesque to me because it conflates the actions of the state then with actions of God. I don't know how you could define idolatry, which is the biggest faith problem other than that. Well, let me ask about the Hebrew scriptures. Like yeah. what we started with this Bible story. We did. We did. Okay. So connect these dots because I'm, co- I'm feeling you're preaching and I'm, I'm the choir. I'm, gonna, I'm here with you. I'm going to connect them right now. Please do. So that's the one side. And probably many people listening are like, yeah, I don't like Christian nationalism either. Mm-hmm. However, here's my fear. Is there something about Christian nationalism though? The idea that like there's God, there's country that's very like natural. Mm. It's very optimal for like defense, military, mm. identity. It's very optimal for the feelings of the folk, of the people. It's what you need to have to have a coherent country. It's like, look, we've got a uniform. We've got, you know, the uniform used to be skinny jeans. Now it's baggy jeans. Right, right. What, what kind of jeans is it? I can't even know. I don't even know anymore. Um, we have a uniform together. We have a language. Oh, yes, mm. a language. It's one language. 
one outfit, one style of jeans, one set of feelings, one vibe, one country, one God. Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. idea is, I think, in a way, I'm, 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 I'm making jokes about it on the side, but that's the idea encoded in the Deuteronomy 32 passage, at least in its original form. Mm. Like as a divine idea yes. that every nation has its God. Come on, isn't it obvious? Ah. And so this idea, whatever you think about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, this idea that like I that 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 to have an identity, you have a nation that is predicated on a on some binding agent, some glue, if you will, that puts us in the same camp. I also love pluralism. I love democracy. I love the idea that uh, I guess I was raised. I know this language is not the language anymore, but hear me out, child of the nineties, <laughs> on the idea of the melting pot. Oh, right. The idea that we're lots of different kinds of people, but we can come together around a shared project and be together even if I don't love everything you do Mm. and even if you don't love everything I do. But this... But 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 this Nash this Christian nationalism idea is like the opposite. It's like no, we have one God. You will bow before this God, and it's like I fear. My fear is maybe it's a theological fear, maybe it's a social fear, is that actually it's a very optimal social position to have in a way. You can deny it, but if we were in a war, there'd be a, a big turn toward this kind of stuff. And in all periods of war, I think this Christian nationalist thing has been a benefit for a country because you're rallying. You gotta if you're gonna kill people, it is not easy to kill people. I, I mm. don't know from experience, but I bet. I bet to get <laughs> rallied around dropping nukes, you have to believe in what you are doing. And if you don't believe in what you're doing, you cannot do it when it's that extreme. So I'm very worried about like my position because it makes me sound like a limousine liberal. Like I hate Christian nas- nationalism and its idolatry, and it could be needed for our very survival in a time of war. Ooh. That's I feel awkward about that. This reminds me of what I... C- what I would think of as a classic weird religion episode <laughs> where we, we interviewed James Bird, who Vanderbilt. Um, yes. Who is a scholar um, who writes a lot about the intersection of Christianity, war and American politics. I really, I really liked him. He was really nice. To oh us. yes. I, I was fortunate enough in this life to have him as a professor. Great and great historian. Mm-hmm. And, one of the things that we talked about in that episode, and it was about, we had watched the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. Yep. And then we interviewed Dr. Bird about his writings on the Revolutionary War and the American Civil War. And um, mm-hmm. one of the things, the guiding question, if, if I remember from that episode, was do you need war for social cohesion? Oh, yes. And in, in some ways, I hear you asking the question, do you need a particular God for social cohesion. Right. So it's like we explored the utility of war in that. And now we're talking about the utility of any kind of religious identity. Right. And, you know, I wonder if because I've, I've heard the 21st, you know, the mid to mid 20th to now mm-hmm. um, centuries referred to as the actual American experiment in the sense that it is actually a multi-ethnic, multicultural democracy or Mm -hmm. democratic republic, Mm -hmm. whatever, however we want (laughs) to, the fact we vote. Um, And that is, um, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do to, to ensure social cohesion, Right. right? So in some ways I hear a lot of the amped up, Christian nationalist language and many, I'm not the first person to to think of this, but as a way to shore up a perceived historic identity, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, we used to be this thing. Mm -hmm. We need to be this thing again. Mm -hmm. This is like, 
we have all these existential threats and this is how we solve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, I share your um, disgust with creating a instrumentalizing mm-hmm. God that mm-hmm. just seems sort of like selling God. There are certain things like that, God you know, is a, God is a code word for my desires and my success. Mm-hmm. It's a code yes, word. I, that, just, I use that. If I say God has blessed me, that's a code word for saying I'm doing well. Yeah. There's, there's a part where it's just like, that's never going to sit right. Yeah. Um, and then I also hear you bringing up this pivotal question, which in ancient Israel, they were dealing with it too, right? Because yeah. if you don't have the kind of cohesion around a worshiping community, then Many times, you it it is it's hard to gather everyone together and band together for your survival, right? Isn't that what happens in the ancient world? Well, it is, and I think I think this if if that passage we we're reading in Deuteronomy thirty-two is really a polytheist, an acknowledgement of a polytheistic worldview, that is certainly not the min- the majority opinion in ancient Israel, mm-hmm. a- as it turns out. Mm-hmm. There's a movement, and people, you know, there are books like, I think, um, Mark Smith at Princeton Theological Seminary has a book called The Early History of God, or The Origins of Biblical Monotheism, both books that I really enjoyed, complex mm-hmm. scholar books. If you wanted to take them on, you could, probably any anyone who's smart enough to listen to this podcast, compliment to the listeners, <laughs> would be totally fine with one of Mark Smith's books, and you should read them. But, like, he basically wants to show that there was an evolution of thought in ancient Israel that moved from from maybe poly- polytheism or some kind of mixed system to something more like what we might call monolatry, which is a complicated word, which means worship of one God, even mm. in the Ten Commandments. Mm. You, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, all panay. In my face is the technical commandment. Interesting. It doesn't, notice that the Ten Commandments don't say you shall not philosophically believe that no other gods actually ever existed. That's interesting. It's a statement of worship. It's a statement of practice. Yes. So, Love it. So, okay, so the idea here would be later in Israel's history, they kind of came to this idea, which, which is what we would call today in a kind of like philosophical sense, monotheism, which is the idea like when I taught, I would always use this joke to students, which I think they used to laugh at at first. And then I got fewer and fewer laughs throughout the years. Aww. Maybe because I'm not funny. But the joke <laughs> always was, I would say, you know, Maybe like, or you could use a term like henotheism or monolatry. Henotheism would mean like there are many deities, but there's kind of like one champion deity. Right. Like a triangle, like a hierarchy. So henotheism says, my God can beat up your God. Right. Monotheism monotheism says, my God can't beat up your God because you don't have a God. I'm like punching the air when I try to beat up your God because there is no other God. So Israel moves to another idea, which is very domineering, which is not only does our nation have a God, but our God is actually also the God of your nation. Your gods are fake. They were never real. This is like Apostle Paul when he gets into the stuff right, in the New Testament right. saying, yeah, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols because really, honestly, if you think about it, they're, they're fake. They're sacrificing to these, quote, gods, but they're not actually even real. So That's I, monotheism. Okay. So I'm thinking about, I have a hard time thinking of monotheism in the Hebrew scriptures because now the only thing that's flooding to my mind, you, te- you teach yeah, me. Yeah. But the only thing that's flooding to my mind are the, uh, is it Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Oh, just read the story the other day in Hebrew. Yeah, the uh, brutal story. But uh, that seems to be a contest between Yahweh and Baal. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what's the one where the statue falls down? Oh, yeah. Dagon in the book of Dagon. First Kings. Yeah. So to me, that seems like God. Yes. Those are the mo- winning God. Those are, those are at the very least loaded henotheistic or monolatrous texts yes. making fun of these other gods that they're impotent. Right. 
Um, at most, they're, they're kind of like mocking monotheistic type stories. Right. So that that is the main line, which is why I think it's that's why I pr- that's why I use the shocking clickbait line in the beginning that this is actually potentially one of the most shocking texts in the Bible Ooh. because it it it's one in which potentially an unmasked polytheism is presented as reality. Right. From the perspective of the authoritative voice in the text, which in that case is Moses. Um, and you can tell that they were worried about it because they changed it in the other texts to sons of Israel because you could tell what the implication was. There are other texts like this too. Psalm 82 famously mm. um, is a text which um, I could I could, I could could look at Psalm 82. Let me pull up Psalm 82 on the old computer here. Um, psalm 82 is a really fascinating psalm in which you've got a deity who's presiding in this great assembly and rendering judgment among the, and the NIV puts it in quotes, God's. But actually, there are no quotes. It's not scare quotes in Hebrew. It's just God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the Elohim, the deities. And then he gives this judgment like, how long are you going to defend the wicked? And da, da, da. This is what you deities do. You guys are basically mm, terrible. Mm-hmm. And then in verse six, I said, you are gods. You're all sons of the most high. Elyon, same name as in Deuteronomy 32. Oh, interesting. But you will die like mortals. You will fall. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. So it's like a call for Israel's God to rise up, judge the earth over the unjust deities. Interesting. That, that would be the polytheistic interpretation. I'm right. not saying that's the only one. People have done all kinds of things with this text. And in fact, Jesus quotes this in the Gospel of John in a very loaded context. Don't even have time to get into that. But there was a there was an interpretation in early Israel which basically suggested that this passage should be read symbolically as Israel died in the wilderness, but then when they were given Torah, they were raised to life again and became like deities. Yes. And so Jesus is maybe referring to that. It's, it's very confusing, but but basically it's all to deal with the fact that it sounds like this psalmist is saying, yeah, there are other gods out there, but they're bad. Mm. And that's the whole point is that they're not very good. So you do get some other things like this. What I'm pointing to are like really rare things that a Hebrew Bible scholar would know about, but other people wouldn't like look at or read. So the point is they go to monotheism. That's the classic idea, notwithstanding the criticism that the Christian Trinity is like a way to smuggle back in more deities into the monotheistic system. Do you think um, this idea, it, what kind of monotheist, is this, is this a monotheistic Christian or is, is Christian nationalism how it gets deployed? monotheistic or what's the other i i yeah the like two hen- words. henotheism or even polytheism yes is there is there yeah, a room for that I, I what know, do you think i know i know exactly what you're saying i think that that's a great question because in some of the ways like remember remember 9-11 that was kind uh, of a weird way to yeah, put it. hey yeah. remember 9-11 we'll never forget um, it 9-11 was a moment in which i i thought i was in college we were both in college during mm-hmm. 9-11 mm-hmm. um i remember that strange morning in my dorm full-fledged my mom adults. calling me and being like Hey, did you know that there was a plane that crashed? And I'm like, yeah, did a plane crash? And she's like, then another one did while it was on TV. I'm like, oh, it sounds like there was some, be- some yeah, plane crashing. That was, uh, yeah, whole world changed. Uh, it's weird. And I remember in the aftermath of that, there was some Christian nationalist sounding stuff that sounded to me almost like people were kind of like ready, if necessary, to basically pit this as a polytheistic thing. This is Christianity versus Islam. Mm-hmm. This is God versus mm-hmm. Allah. Mm-hmm. Um and you could, of course, do all kinds of theology about how Allah is actually just a Semitic word that means God and that, you know, notwithstanding the ecumenical claim that Christians and Muslims worship right, actually the same right. God and is Jesus that God. Okay. There's a lot there. We'll leave that to the side for now, except to say, I know what you're saying. And yeah, some of it started to sound like that. It was a battle of God against God. Right. This is why it, you're, you're just inflaming my Hebrew Bible scholar tendencies right now. This is why in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, God actually does this multi-stage 
voluntary leaving of his presence from the temple. Why? Mm. Because the Babylonians are going to burn it down. If they burn it down and he's inside, like a craggy old man with a beard in the back, your God just lost. That's the whole point of the Babylonian destruction is like, how do you make sense of a country when your, your nation's God got their butt kicked? If you basically say, no, this nation's God didn't get his butt kicked. He made you get your butt kicked by another nation who doesn't even have a God because he was mad at you he was mm, not defeated. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you can do like a theology around this too. But I think the slippage, your question is a very good one because there is slippage between saying our, our nation's God is our nation's God and saying our nation's God is actually the only God that there is at all in any nation. Can I speculate about this? Coming back to Professor Dumais' um, comment yep. about the 1970s. Yep. This strikes me as a post-Cold War problem mm. to have. Yeah, in what sense? Well, if you think about, you know, um, I, I've read a lot of um, Christian writings in from the Cold War era mm-hmm. about the state of the nation and democracy and mm-hmm. such and such. And they were really energized by this idea of an atheist opponent. Oh. So the communist, um, communist Russia, communist China yeah. was a threat, not because it was a competitive deity, but it was a competitive governance system ideology without God, right. you know? So there was in some ways to your original question about how Christian nationalism may or may not work for, to create social cohesion, right? the atheistic communist other that sort of was this imagined um, monster like out there in, in the ether and we were separated from them just geographically it felt like um, I, could, I could see how you don't really need to have a lot of the details figured out about being a quote unquote Christian nation, mm-hmm. you know, because you're not really in competition. It's no, you're not in a theological competition right. with someone. You're just saying, yes, God, is, we believe in God. No, that's th- it, right? Like that's all you really have to have. I think that's, I, I think your comment about the details is exactly correct. That this is a deeply emotional, instinctive kind of movement and it's, it's not reasoned in that sense. Well, we'll see where the, the questions go. 2024 election, getting ready. Woo! We'll be your source. This has been a production of Weird Religion. A podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Follow us into the ocean. Allow your heart to blossom. Retreat into the gorgeous and haunted forests of your mind. Find us there.